Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Sebastian Younger has a new book out. It's called Tribe. There's a great synopsis of it on his website. He wrote, This book is about why tribal sentiment is such a rare and precious thing in modern society and how the lack of it has affected us all. It's about what we can learn from tribal societies, about loyalty and belonging, and the eternal human quest for meaning. It's about why, for many people, war feels better than peace, and hardship can turn out to be a great blessing, and disasters are sometimes remembered more fondly than weddings or tropical vacations. Humans don't mind duress. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. In a week in which a proud United States tribe suffered a terrible loss, Younger's exploration of what's wrong with our deeply ingrained, rugged individualism is worth a listen. Sebastian Younger is the best-selling author of War and The Perfect Storm. His Afghan war documentary, Restrepo, was nominated for an Academy Award. Younger spoke with KUOW's Patricia Murphy at Town Hall Seattle on May 31st. Thanks to Bree Ripley for our recording. Professor Jeb Wyman introduced the event. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming to Town Hall. Um, welcome. Uh, we're in Town Hall have uh, graciously uh, allowed me to make, say a few words briefly about the Clementi course for the veterans, uh, for veterans at Antioch University. I'm here tonight uh, with 14 veterans who are currently participating uh, in this course. This is about 100 hours of study uh, in the humanities, uh, philosophy, art, literature, critical thinking and writing, and history. The veterans engage classic texts and ideas, placing their own experience as warriors within the context of the warriors who came before them and studying the myths and idealism of the societies that sent them to war and then received them back home. They've read Walt Whitman's poetry on dressing the wounds of the Civil War wounded, Mark Twain's bitter commentary on the Philippine-American War, um, Hemingway's short story, Soldier's Home, which is set in 1919, and Yusuf Kamenakia's poem, Facing It, which is about the wall, uh, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial uh, in, DC, in uh, Washington, D.C., these and, and other texts. Uh, they debated Kant's moral philosophy. They've explored Aristotle's idea of human flourishing, considered Krishna's discussion of duty with the general Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. The veterans are Kevin Shows, Will Schwab, Jen Swan, Solimar Santos Perez, Crystal Dandridge Jackson, Rodney Jones, Mark Roast, Ron Poundstone, Christina Sawicki, Michael Perkins, John Phillips, Donna Baker, Julia Villalobos, and Adriana Moore. And they're all here tonight. It is my privilege and honor uh, to be part of this course and to learn uh, with these veterans. I also learn from them, of course, sometimes colorful military jargon. Uh, recently, they taught me the meaning of the phrase blue falcon, if you know what that means. Clearly, we have some veterans in the audience. Uh, if those veterans who are in the audience, if you would like to be part of the Clemente course, a new cohort starts in January, I would invite you to talk to me after the show or one of the individuals uh, currently participating and talk to them about that. would love to talk to you about that. 
It is also my privilege and honor to introduce to you Sebastian Junger and Patricia Murphy. Sebastian Junger is the New York Times bestselling author of War, The Perfect Storm, A Death in Belmont, Fire, and other publications. Currently a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, he has covered news stories around the world and for his work has received both a Peabody and a National Magazine Award. Junger is the co-director with Tim Hetherington of the 2010 documentary Restrepo, which won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance and was nominated for an Academy Award. He was also director of the documentaries The Last Patrol and Korengal. He joins us tonight to discuss his latest work, Tribe, on homecoming and belonging. He's joined this evening by KOW's Patricia Murphy. Patricia Murphy is an award-winning military and veterans reporter based at KOW Public Radio here in Seattle. In 2011, her collaboration with the Seattle Times, The Weight of War, won a national award for excellence in healthcare journalism from the Association of Healthcare Journalists. Murphy has received a national Edward R. Murrow Award and in 2012 was inducted into the DART Society, a network of journalists who cover trauma, conflict, and social injustice. And so at this time, please join me in giving a warm town hall welcome to Sebastian Junger and Patricia Murphy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sebastian Younger, for coming and having this important conversation with us. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you. Can I get my veterans to say hello in the audience? Fantastic. Um, I guess, you know, I'd like to start by talking about how you're, in your book, Tribe, you examine the roots of tribalism in the United States and how almost immediately that went against so-called civilized society. There were complaints that, that people were running to stay with the natives, but nobody was running away to, to stay um, in, in our um, settlements on the East Coast. What is, did you learn about that, and, and what have we lost, or what remains of that today in the United States? Yeah, I make the point at the beginning of my book that America is the only nation that's risen to be a global power that um, was formed right alongside a Stone Age culture, the Native American tribes of this continent. Um, And that that situation lasted for several hundred years and that both sides had the option, because of their proximity, had the option of choosing to transfer over to the other side because it looked like a better deal. And as it turned out, surprisingly, um, Benjamin Franklin and other thinkers and writers at the time noted that the people in the the settlements, um, Europeans, white people in the the colonies, were constantly, uh, not in large numbers, but continually absconding and running off to join the Indians. And that, as Franklin said, we don't have, or Clef Coe, I'm sorry, a different writer, said we don't have one example of, a, of a, uh, an Indian, he called them, uh, of, of joining our society. 
And that, that was actually a source of some consternation because, of course, this was, a, uh, this was a society that thought very well of itself, right? It was an upright, developed, civilized Christian society that, and the people in it just assumed it was the best thing going. And so it really, the fact of the matter that people kept leaving it and not going in the other direction actually flew in the face of what um, colonial society thought of itself. And some people, Thomas Paine uh, and some others, took some stabs at trying to figure out what what was it um, that was so appealing. And the answer they came up with, one missionary that I found said that, that um, the Native Americans live their entire lives in liberty uh, from birth till death. Um, the fundamental egalitarianism of Native society was thought to be a, a, an allure. Um, and that it was, it, was a, it was, you know, basically a free and open society. They didn't have class structure. Um, it didn't, it, it, people were judged on their own merits. I mean, it, you know, in a weird way, it was a kind of a utopia. And as a result, as Thomas Paine and others were assembling their ideas uh, for the Constitution and for incorporating ideas of liberty into our founding documents, they used sections of what was called the, the Iroquois Great Law of Peace and the inalienable rights of man and these sort of ideals that were part of the Enlightenment thinking in Europe were also found incorporated into Iroquois society and were used, were taken directly from Iroquois tradition and put into some of our founding documents. Uh, it's just an extraordinary sort of cross-pollination of societies at that point. What can we learn from those tribalisms that we can try to apply to our society today? Where are we lacking, and, and really, how can we get back there? Well, the, the, the egalitarianism of that society was very much rooted in the kind of economy that they had. I mean, people... Um, it, was an, it was an organic society. I mean, people... Everyone was engaged in the sort of mechanism of survival, um, the communities were defended in a very immediate sense by their members. Um, the, the, Ir- the Iroquois in particular had an interesting system where there were war leaders who took over when there was conflict, and as soon as the conflict stopped, all of their authority was abolished, and the authority was transferred to peacetime leaders. And during war, if the enemy negotiated for peace, the terms were um, considered by the peacetime leaders, not the war leaders. And so how do we, you know, as a modern society, how do we, um, how do we du- duplicate that? I don't think we can. I mean, it, the, uh, um, I mean there, there, you can't just sort of scale it up and have it all work the same way. Um, and my book, Tribe, is about what happens. It's about that sort of ancient human preference for community, for human closeness in the way we live. And, and what, what are the costs of losing that and loss that we have? I mean, there's amazing, amazing benefits to being in modern society. Uh, I'm happy to list them, but I'm sure we all know them. Um, uh, but then the costs are really significant, and they are, um, they're emotional, they're psychological. I, you know, I found that um, as wealth goes up in a society, the suicide rate goes up depression rate goes up, and we can talk more about that later, but there are real costs to modernity, um, and um, 
and you know, we, we evolved to live in groups of 40, 50 people. Uh, that's what, and we're, we're, we're primates, right? I mean, we're, we're a social species. And we, are, we, are, we, are, we did not evolve to live in, uh, emo- in an emotionally separate way from the people around us. And that, that is, um, that's what's happened, and it, and, it, and it has a real cost. I don't, the, the, the Amish, for example, don't, they have a very low rate of depression, very low rate of suicide. They don't drive cars. And what that means is they are forcibly, I mean, they, they are forced to live out their lives in close proximity to other people. And, and there's a real buffering effect to that when it comes to mental illness. And so, you know, I'm not suggesting this, but if you wanted to address the problem, I think you would almost have to ban the car. I mean, it would sort of force us to revert to a kind of communalism. Um, can, could we obtain some of those benefits and still drive around in our Prius? Hopefully. But, I, but no, you know, like, it's not, human society has never done that before, but... As I pointed out a few days ago to someone who was asking me a similar question, like, you know, in the late 60s, we'd never walked on the moon either. And, and uh, so if we can do that, we might, we might be able to figure it out. But, it, but it's, a new, uh, it's a new situation for humanity, this one that we're facing. You talk a lot about the tribe-like mentality that occurs among soldiers when they're at war. Um, and I wonder if that bond is necessary to complete the mission. And I also wonder whether or not it started in boot camp for a lot of people, whether it was designed to be that way. Yeah, I mean, it started in boot camp. It started in the Stone Age, but yeah. Um, I, 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 um, a, a platoon in combat very closely replicates our evolutionary past. I and mean, we have, as I said, we evolved to live uh, in groups of 30, 40, 50, 60 people, maybe tops 100, 150 maximum. Um, larger than that and you start to deplete deplete the resources around you if you're a hunter-gatherer and that means you intimately knew um, everyone that you lived with and and furthermore and most importantly that there was no individual survival outside of group survival Uh, and um, the the group you could not on your own decide well the group's not that important to me. I'm going to do my own thing. Um, and it meant that even in, in combat, self-sacrifice, like you might, as, you might as well take enormous risks to defend the group because you're not going to survive without it anyway. And, um, and, and a platoon in combat functions very, very much that way. And I, you know, I think it's... I'm, I, I've never been through boot camp and I haven't covered it as a journalist, but my guess is that the drills and the training... Um, reinforce something that is already absolutely hardwired into our primate brains in terms of our commitment to the group, uh, our commitment over um, sort of basically valuing the group over the individual. One guy that I was with in the platoon that I covered for off and on for a year in Afghanistan, he said to me, um, he said, you know, it's funny, there's guys in the platoon who straight up hate each other but we'd all die for each other. And, you know, I realized that, that that's actually not a relationship that you can find in civilian life. Um, uh, friends, good friends might die for each other. Uh, family members might hate each other and still do that, uh, like on a good day. But, um, you know, but, you know, but ba- basically, 
people who don't like each other aren't going to sacrifice very much for each other in civilian life. In combat, you cannot think that way. And in our evolutionary past, there were surely vicious um, conflicts within these small groups. But if you didn't have this ethos of the group above all, uh, above all else, the the group wouldn't survive. And um, one of the things, I write about this in my book, War, one of the things that separates and we're very, very closely related to chimpanzees. We share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. But one of the things, one of the behaviors that, re- and chimpanzees use tools, there's child rearing, there's learning. I mean, there's all kinds of very human-like stuff in chimpanzee society. Uh, and it is a society. But the one thing that, that, has n- that you do not see in chimpanzees, only in humans, um, that same-sex peers will, in humans... Uh, will rush to each other's aid if there's a mortal threat, even though there's a, almost a near certainty of dying. Um, in chimpanzee society, if one male gets attacked by males of a rival chimpanzee troop, ganged up on and attacked and beaten to death, his buddies, the other males in his group, will not come to his aid. Even if that would mean evening, evening the odds and, 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 and it might be a fair fight, they run away. And that's and that is absolutely not what humans do, and it really sets us apart in the animal world. It's a kind of altruistic bravery, uh, almost suicidal bravery on behalf of others that you care about. It's extraordinary. So, I mean, I find it to be a very, very moving, moving thing in in human society. It seems to make sense, bringing it back to humans, that once you would share that bond with a group, with a platoon, perhaps in a combat situ- situation, maybe not even a combat situation, it is hard to let that go and to, even though you may be coming back to a supportive family, you're a different person coming back from that experience, a changed person. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, w- one of the impulses for this book was me trying to figure out why there was such a high rate of PTSD in the U.S. military, and that was something that interested me and personally concerned me because I, you know, I knew I'd spent a year with a platoon off and on and, was, and cared a lot about those guys, and I watched them struggle. The ones who struggled were the ones who got out of the military. The guys who stayed in were okay while they were in. And the, 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 the people who got out you sort of hit this buzzsaw when they came home. And um, so... I, you know, I, did, I was an anthropologist in college. I did my field work on the Navajo Reservation. And uh, I was a pretty good runner, and, and a distance runner in college. And I, did, I wrote a thesis about Navajo long-distance running. I trained with their best guys. And uh, it was an amazing experience. But I, so I, after that, I sort of looked at everything through this sort of anthropological lens. And that's how I do my journalism. And I had this idea. I was like, I bet, you know, I mean, the Navajo, the Apache, the Comanche, like they were very warlike societies. And I was like, I bet those guys weren't getting PTSD. You know, like after, I mean, imagine the combat back then. I mean, you know, it wasn't sniper rifles at 400 meters, right? It was, it was clubs and hatchets and spears. I mean, imagine just the trauma of engaging in that kind of combat. And, um, and I started to look into it, and I started talking to anthropologists who'd worked around the world. And indeed, it seemed to be true that the, the level, I mean, everyone reacts to trauma uh, almost everyone has a traumatic reaction if they're traumatized. And it, but it's, tr- it, it, it's usually transitory. It lasts some weeks, some months. I've had it as a journalist. 
um, only about 20% of people get, get stuck in a kind of long-term trauma loop. Um, in, our, in our society, it's much higher. And so the, the, um, what, it, what seems to happen is that if you return to a really close, cohesive society, like a tribal society, you recover from, people recover from trauma quite quickly. And it makes sense. I mean, we evolved as a species to survive. It was a harsh environment that we evolved in. If trauma incapacitated us psychologically, we wouldn't be here as a species. I mean, it's taken two million years to get here. We would not have made it. If getting attacked by a lion and almost killed incapacitated us, wouldn't, wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. And what seems, what seems to be the... the, the um, the reason is that is that if you come if you if you if you if you have the near miss with the lion and you return to a close cohesive society, you recover quite quickly. And and this, the the soldiers in this country, um, American soldiers, are coming back to a modern society that has enormously high rates of men- mental illness, and and that to me is like the significant the significant factor in the really high rates of PTSD that we have. We don't have the block party mentality that we used to have. Like even back in the 70s, right? We live in a very secular world. We have our iPhones. That cannot help in some ways bringing people back and, and, and looking at them like you're just another human anymore. In, in some ways, we don't look up enough. Yeah, I mean, I looked at PTSD and just general disability rates for um, all of the nation's wars, and it's very odd. Uh, um, every war, starting with the American Civil War, uh, every war, the, ca- the, the casualty rate and therefore the combat, the intensity of the combat, uh, the casualty rate has gone down, thank God, every war. Um, but the disability rate, the rate at which people claimed both physical and psychological disability from the government has gone up. So as casualties are going down, combat intensity is going down, disability is going up. They should be going in the same direction. And, um, you know, I know from World War II, um, the veterans came home. I mean, we all know what happened in World War II and how hard that was on everybody, on civilians in Europe, civilians in this country, and on, on soldiers, on veterans. And they came home, and they came home to a country that still needed them, needed them to work. And they were put to work when they got back, and they came back to very cohesive communities. I mean, I, a friend of mine, her father fought in World War II, and when he came home to Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, he lived within a few blocks of his six brothers who'd also fought. And the thing about a, the thing about a wealthy society, which broadly speaking we are in relative to the, to the rest of the world, is that as wealth goes up, you can make individual choices. So you can move, you know, you can grow up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and decide to move to California or move to New York or whatever. And the wealthier we get as a society, the more individualistic our choices are, which is great in so many ways. But it means that you do not have the kind of community support that you would have that you would have if you stayed where you grew up. And and that has an enormous impact on our on our mental health. And I mean, you know, there's the iPhone conversation we could have, which I think is just an extension of that alienation. Um, it's not something I've studied, but I have plenty of opinions about it. <laughs> flip phone. Flip I have phone. a flip phone. There's my opinion <laughs> about iPhones. <laughs> it also took a lot longer to get home from World War II. 
there was a decompression time that people had on their way back from World War II in Afghanistan and Iraq. You're one minute you're in Afghanistan, and in you know 50 hours you're still tapping the the sand out of your boots, and you're back in the United States. There there is very little time yeah. to to make that adjustment. Yeah, I think that transition time is really important. Um, and, and, and keep in mind, this isn't just about trauma. In fact, it's primarily not about trauma, I, I think. I mean, uh, Peace Corps volunteers are not traumatized, but they live in very cohesive, um, community-oriented places for a couple of years. You know, they're in a village in Cameroon or wherever for a couple of years, and when they come back, they have quite high rates of readjustment problems and, and depression. I mean, it's known in the Peace Corps that as hard as it is to go from New York City to living in a village in Cameroon, it's way harder to come back. And it, the U.S. military, I mean, a lot of civilians don't know this, but the, around 10% of the U.S. military is actively engaged in combat. The other 90% really may not be traumatized in any significant way during their deployment. Um, and yet an enormous number of people who deploy come home and are deeply affected by the transition. They get depressed, they feel alienated, they feel like they don't belong. It's called PTSD. That's the word we all have for it. But um, in fact, if you weren't traumatized, it by definition cannot be PTSD. And But it, what it can be is the kind of transition disorder that... Um, that Peace Corps volunteers have, and it is just as dangerous. It's just as deadly. It doesn't need to be PTSD to pose a threat to someone's um, psychological health or even their, their life. Um, and, and there is a real risk of calling it the wrong thing. Um, I, I, a lot of people, I know a lot of vets that I know, are really bewildered by their sense that they don't belong, they feel like they don't belong to this society. And you know, I, you know, I've started saying, you know, you're not alone. Like, a lot of people who didn't go to war feel the same way. And, um, and, I, and I really think it's a sort of societal problem. I, I, I had this idea that, okay, how do, you, I mean, how do you sort of test for that, right? What, what happens if you take modern society and you collapse it? How do people react? Because if, if my theory's right... Uh, if you take modern society and you collapse it and force people to live communally, they should do better, right? Because they want to, we, we are wired to want to live communally. That's my theory, right? And I, so I started looking at situations where modern, modern society had had a catastrophe happen to it. Uh, one was the Blitz in London. And um, what happened in London? For six months, the German Air Force bombed London almost every night. Uh, killed 30,000 people. I mean, New York, I live in New York City. On 9-11, we lost 3,000. And it completely traumatized the population of New York. 30,000 people died in London. People were living, sleeping shoulder to shoulder in the tube stations. Um, they, they were forced into a communal society. And what happened afterwards? A lot of people in London missed the Blitz. Um, one... One official, well, the, the, the officials in London, the administration, 
was, was worried that there would be mass psychiatric casualties during the Blitz, along with the physical casualties. And they're prepared for literally millions of freaked out people checking themselves into psychiatric wards because the bombing was um, driving them to hysteria. And what happened was the opposite, that uh, when the bombing started, admissions to psych- psychiatric wards went down, down. Um, as one, one official said, we have neurotics driving ambulances. Um, when there's a crisis, you understand that your community needs you, your people need you, and it seems to buffer people against their psychological troubles. Um, one woman I read about said, a civilian, said, you know, during the Blitz, we would have all gone down to the beaches with broken bottles to fight the Germans if we'd had to. Now, when you have people who are that cl- community, that, that are that, that when, you, when you have people who are that communalized, um, psychologically, I mean, ironically, psychologically, they do very well. I, you know, my, the first war that I was in was in Sarajevo uh, in 1993. I was a young man, and I wanted to be a war reporter, and I packed a bag, put a sleeping bag in it, and some notebooks, and a pair of hiking boots, and you know, and a typewriter actually, because I heard that the like literally a manual typewriter because I heard there wasn't electricity in Sarajevo. And I went off to Sarajevo and I, and, and I covered that off and on for, um, for about six months, I think, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know what happened there. I mean, the Bosnian Serb army surrounded that city and used the civilian population for target practice for three years. I mean, they killed or wounded one-fifth of the population of that city with, with artillery and sniper fire. Completely traumatized 350,000 people in that city, right? And um, the war finally ended, and the city got rebuilt, and I finally went back there uh, last summer. It was amazing. It was a beautiful city. I mean, it was such a joy to see, you know? And I met with this woman named Nidzara, who was a journalist, and she had been wounded at 17. She had been wounded during the siege. A tank round had hit her parents' apartment. It almost took her legs off. And the, the doctors were able to save her legs. Um, they performed reconstructive surgery on her legs without anesthesia because there wasn't any. Um, 17-year-old girl, right? So she survived. 20 years go by, 20-plus uh, years. And um, I finally am back there last summer, and I met with her. She's a journalist, and she interviewed me, but I actually ended up interviewing her. And she said, you know, we were talking about this stuff, and she said she literally dropped her voice. We were at a cafe, and she literally dropped her voice. She said, you know, the war was terrible, but we all miss it. She said, we miss how close we were. We had to be close to survive. And um, war is so horrible, and if, people, and if people miss it, it must mean that society really has problems for anyone to miss war. We were better people then. We were more generous. We cared for each other. And I'll just leave that story with this, that, that um, she said that there was some graffiti that she'd seen uh, referring to the war, and, and the graffiti said this. It said, things were better when they were bad. Now, now think about those stories and think about veterans fighting in a platoon in a little outpost, how close they would get. And now picture taking them and then dropping them down in the great American suburb. Like, what's going to happen to them? It's, not, it's not, um, not hard to guess. A lot of uh, a successful transition for veterans begins with a new sense of purpose, with a comfortableness in your new skin, in your, in your country again. 
we are always hearing about, we love veterans, we'll hire veterans, we'll do all this. Are we really helping veterans? I mean, I think in, I think in some ways our society is failing all of us. Um, veterans are, are a particularly vulnerable group, I think, and particularly strong. I mean, there are, I think veterans are a strange mix of vulnerable and more vulnerable than, than many people, uh, civilians, but also much, much stronger. Um, and I, 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 my instinct is to say that the, maybe the most valuable thing that society could do for veterans is to make sure that they have the opportunity to work. Um, one of the things that is very, very compelling about being in the military, I've heard, is that you feel that you're needed. You know, I mean, you, you have a very specific task and enormous, enormous responsibility for people you care about enormously, right? And that's how, you know, again, that's how we evolved to survive. I mean, that's, that's, that's what humans are. And, and soldiers are given that in spades, in combat. Uh, and in support units, too. It's not just combat, it's both. An incredible sense of purpose and meaningfulness. And you're judged, you know, you're judged on your own merits, right? Like, um, who, you know, you're, if your father's like a college professor or not, or in jail or not, or what your personal, I mean, whatever, it doesn't, the personal details really don't matter. Uh, what, matter what seems to matter to soldiers is how you conduct yourself, how you conduct yourself in the group, and if you are doing everything you can to make sure everyone gets home alive. That's how you're judged, right? So that's something that everyone has, has control over, right? I mean, high school, the things you're judged for, whether you're good-looking or not or what kind of family you're from, whatever, you don't have control over that, right? But you're, in combat, you're totally self-defining. I mean, you could be five foot one, and if you're a good soldier, it doesn't matter that you think you're, that, you know, you're short, right? I mean, it's, you know, if you want to join the basketball team, you, you better be tall. There's nothing you can do about it. In combat, really what's selected for is grit and determination and dedication to the group, and everyone has that access to those virtues and um, so they come back from this self-defining environment to society where they start to be judged again for things they don't have control over um, and, I, and, and I think the most urgent thing we can probably do for veterans is, is make sure that they have a purpose, a utility where they can demonstrate how fine they are um, how effective they are um, it, it's something that humans really need. Um, I found an account of, a, of an earthquake in Italy, in Avezzano, Italy, in 1916, I think it was. And um, it, you know, killed something like 90% of the population. I mean, it was like a, nu- it was like a, a nuclear bomb had gone off. And the survivors, uh, it took days for help to reach the survivors. And, and this one person who wrote an account of it said... Um, that rich people, poor people, there were no distinctions made between anybody. All this sort of class structure in Italian society disappeared. Everyone was just surviving, right? And um, and he said he said that the earthquake had created what the law promises to deliver. What, I'm sorry, the earthquake had created what the law promises, but in fact does not deliver, which is the equality of all men. And I think what the most important thing, not just for veterans and soldiers, but frankly, for all of us, 
that, the, that there is a sense of equality that transcends at least the potential for equality that transcends the burdens uh, that we're all born with one way or another. There are so many things about these wars that are unprecedented. Multiple deployments, people living where in, in previous wars they may have died, chronic pain, traumatic brain injuries. All of these things um, present themselves in our communities. How equipped really are civilians to, to look at this in a meaningful way? Do our politics get in the way? Are we interested in understanding in some ways? Because... I think in, in, in this city of Seattle, it can be difficult sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the, if we want to consider, consider ourselves uh, a country, a unified country, which we'd better, frankly, um, it means that we all own the decisions that the country makes and the actions the country takes, even if we disagree with them, but we own them. We have to think of it that way. Um, you can be for the war, you can be against the war, but you do live in a country that went to war. It's not the soldiers' war. It's our war. And that's true for the most vehement pacifist and the most vehement patriot equally. And we ha- if, if you don't think of it that way, you're, you, you will start to split the country up, um, which... Um, seems to be a danger right now, actually, for a variety of reasons. But it really comes down to um, thinking about ourselves in a sense kind of tribally, right? Like, we're we're together in this, and we're going to be disagreeing all the way down the line, right? Because we're a complicated, messy democracy, so there's going to be a lot of disagreement. But at the end of the day, um, we have collectively elected a government that has made certain decisions, and we, we own it. We own it. It's not the soldier's problem. Um, you can't... Um, sometimes, sometimes people who were against the war um, wars, will say to me, like, don't they realize like, what they're doing? It's old, about soldiers, right? Don't they realize what they're doing? And I'm like, look, you're asking 19-year-olds to hold a referendum on the nation's wars. The 19-year-olds are assuming that that the adults in the room, the Congress and the president, made a responsible decision. You really can't ask the 19-year-olds to step in and second-guess the decision that our government made. That's not fair. Um, it's a civilian. We have a civilian government. The, civilian make, the, the, the government makes the decisions, and the army follows orders. And you really can't blame the wars on the army. It's us, and it's our tax dollars. And um, when, once you start thinking that way you're in the uncomfortable position of being responsible for something you might have been against. But the advantage of it, and it's a very important advantage, it's crucial, is that we become one country again. And once we feel like we're one country, then we can start arguing about how to run it. But don't, like, we, we can't start splitting off in, in that way and disavowing things that our country has done. It's still our, it's still our responsibility, like all of us. Shared risk, shared responsibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I love uh, just a couple more questions actually yeah. before we, we let you guys talk. You had this really interesting idea, you were chatting about it in the green room, about an open mic 
for veterans, and you've done this in other cities. Uh, and, and this is something where you let veterans come up and speak for 10 minutes, and, and people just listen. And I wonder if that act is informative um, and, and can change minds, and, and that conversation is important, that we feel the uncomfortable truths of war in a personal way from fellow humans rather than reading it in the newspaper, from the people who are actually there. Yeah, I mean, I got this idea from looking at Native American society and in a, in a, in a, in a society that is that um, uh, sort of organic. Everyone is very, very aware. And I'm, I'm going back into um, previous centuries now, okay, not right now. I mean, obviously, the uh, situation on reservations right now is very complicated and, and often heartbreaking. But bef- before the cultures clashed, in, in the sort of origins of those societies. Um, everyone, everyone was intimately acquainted with the things that kept everyone alive, right? So if, the, if, you know, if you lived off buffalo meat, you understood how buffalo were hunted and how they were butchered and how it was cooked. And, you know, every aspect of the, the society that kept everyone alive was intimately, everyone was intimately familiar with that. In modern society, um, we're not. Right? For some good reasons. We live in a huge, sprawling, complex society. And, we, you know, we're not... I mean, we live in wooden houses, and most of us don't know loggers, right? We, we you know, we... Whatever, we work in high-rises, and most of us don't know um, construction workers who build high-rises. Like, I mean, it's just, just the reality of modern society. But there's a real downside to that. And this disconnect between the, 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 the benefits of our... Uh, of our lives, of our society, and the things that keep it going, um, there's, a, there's a huge disconnect. And, and uh, you know, one point in my book, I talked about the phrase, uh, no blood for oil, which I think was a sort of well-intentioned slogan against the Iraq war, which, I mean, I was against the Iraq war myself, so I get it. I actually didn't think the Iraq war was about oil. But what struck me about that slogan is that it was a bumper sticker, right, that was put on cars, that, that run on oil. You know, and, and, I, and on some level, I mean, I, I get it. Like, I don't mean to be too cynical or snide here, but to me, it revealed, I mean, it was well-intentioned. I get it. But the truth is that the, there's the disconnect right there. You know? I mean, it's a blind spot, right? And so what, what I had this idea... Um, that one, one thing, a very powerful experience for people is sort of cathartic performance. You know, the sort of, like, you sort of express yourself before your community. And it was, that, that was incorporated into a lot of ceremonies that Native American tribes used to bring warriors back into the community or combat veterans from modern wars back onto the reservation, into the community. It's still going on. And uh, the, the, a common component of it is that basically the veteran or the warrior um, recounts their exploits on the battlefield uh, in front of the community, in front of the people that they did those things for, right? And so what it does is it connects, it, ma- it, 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 it makes the, 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 the experience that happened on the battlefield part of the community, the fabric of community and it makes the community part of what happened on the battlefield. It, it blends those two things as they should be. And um, 
I, I, I was in Oklahoma a few months ago, and this woman came up to me, and she was of the Kiowa Nation, and she was a vet. And she said, you know, before I went to Iraq, she said, I, the, the, my whole community, in full traditional regalia, sort of drummed her out of town. And when she came back, um, they did the same thing. And she said, I didn't, she said, I don't have PTSD, I'm fine. Because she said, I deployed with my, spiritually speaking, psychologically speaking, she deployed with her entire community. Um, so, sort of long preamble for what my idea is, you know, we're not going to do sweat lodges and, you know, whatever. We're, it, it, I, I get it. Like, we're not, we just logistically can't do some of those things. But um, every city, every town in this country has a town hall. It's the, it's the uh, city hall. It's the, it's, the, it's the civic center of every community in this country. And on Veterans Day, it's not open for business. There's no business being conducted, so it's available to be used if you can get someone to unlock the door and turn on the PA system. And the idea that I had was that you basically invite veterans of all wars to stand up, and for 10 minutes at a time, all you get is 10 minutes, that's enough, and for 10 minutes to describe what the war felt like to the community. And that means the community has to show up. Like, you got to show up. If you support the troops, I don't care if you're against the war or not. It doesn't matter. But if you support the troops, and, and supporting the troops... The extension of that is, I support my country. Like, I'm part of this country, right? And you show up, and you just listen. And this isn't a debate about the merits of the war. This isn't a, this isn't a peace protest. This isn't a patriotic thing. This isn't anything. It just allows veterans to say what it was like to be at D-Day or in Vietnam. Some people are going to be really proud of their service. And some, people, some vets are going to say, I missed the war. I wish I was back there. Frankly, they're going to say that, some version of that. Some vets are going to be really angry um, and will make everyone uncomfortable because they're so angry. And I've seen that happen. And some vets are going to be crying too hard to talk at all. And everyone's going to be heartbroken. But that's, all of that's war, right? If we're going to go to war, our young men and women are going to have all of those feelings. And if we're, if we're, not, he, if we're not here, if, if we don't assemble to let them so let those feelings out, they're stuck with those feelings. And they're having those feelings because we asked them to. But if you start to do that, and if you do that in every town in this country, not only will veterans benefit, I sincerely think, we've done it, I've seen them benefit by that, that ceremony. Not only will they benefit, but it will begin to cohere the country a bit. It will begin to feel like we're, we're a, a unified society which we, we desperately need. And the, more, the healthier this country is in that sense, the easier it's going to be for veterans. Um, I don't, the easier it's going to be for veterans to, to come home, the, but more to the point, the more appealing it's going to be for them to come home. Is it easy to disconnect from the war because we have a, a desensitivity to violence that this, we are disengaged from our political process in many ways, so it was somebody else's decision to go to war, and those guys are over there doing that job, and I've got my phone here, and I'm just going to read what I want. Then they're going to come back, and, and they're just... Are we so disengaged from war itself that a conversation like that doesn't really happen very often, um, that, that people wouldn't stand up and, and, and speak the truth about what they experienced to a public forum? Well, yeah, I mean, we don't do, we, there isn't much ceremonial time and space in this society, right? So, yeah, that doesn't happen because they're just, they're, it's not a recognized process. Like, we just don't 
do it. And um, but I but I what I would say is that. I mean, just to go back to what I said before, we're disconnected from everything. I mean, yeah, we're disconnected from war. We're also disconnected from oil, the production of oil. We're also disconnected from the cutting down of trees and the farming of food. and every, I mean, we're disconnected from everything. And a lot of that stuff costs a lot of lives. Like, in 2014, the nut, I mean, there were some, some sort of perennial leaders in, you know, the list of dangerous jobs that kills the most people every year. You know, it's logging, commercial fishing, oil. I mean, farming. Interestingly, I mean, there's, a, I mean, there's sort of like every year, it's sort of mostly the same industries. And in 2014, just to pick a year out of a hat, um, around 5,000 people were killed in workplace accidents in these dangerous jobs, keeping this nation going, which is almost the casualty count of both of Iraq and Afghanistan combined for the entirety of those wars. Just in one year, right? We are not connected to that. And, and so, yeah, do we need to connect to, the, to, the, to violence more if we're going to wage war? Yeah, absolutely. But that's just the beginning. I mean, really, it's just the beginning of what we need to connect to to, to run a, a, an, ethic, an ethical and connected society. Do we do veterans a disservice by thanking them for their service without truly engaging in their experience with them? Well, I mean, there's a lot of situations where you meet someone briefly, like on the bus, and there really isn't the chance to engage fully in an experience that lasted 15 months and contains enormously complex emotions. So I don't think it's realistic in, in, in the sort of in the, in, in the moments of a person's day to connect like that. I, 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 I can't imagine that we could do it in any other context like... But even as a group. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, I mean, that's the point. That, would, for me, would be the point of a ceremony on Veterans Day is to make a point of doing that once a year as a group. I, I, don't, I, I don't... It's very hard to understand other people's experiences, uh, and it's not a realistic expectation. I will never know what it's like to give birth. You know, it's just not happening. And... Um, and I'm never going to know what it's like to be a soldier either. And, and, but that doesn't mean that we can't have enormous empathy for those experiences, but we're not going to understand them all. When you say thank you for your service, I think it's well-intentioned. I think often civilian people say that because they're, they don't know what else to say and they feel like they should say something. Um, I, I, I think we should be um, forgiving for the, you know, in a sense, like it feels awkward and shallow, but it's also well-meaning. So I don't know quite how to judge it. I think veterans are starting to bridle that a little bit. One of the downsides of saying it, I mean, in Israel, they don't say thank you for your service because everyone, everyone serves. You know, it would be like say, saying thank you for paying your taxes in this country. I mean, it's like, yeah, right. The country wouldn't exist without it but everyone's doing it. It's just a given, right? And, you know, I think one thing that could be enormously healthy for this, for this country is to have mandatory national service. I, I think it's immoral to put a gun in someone's hand who doesn't want to fight. But I think mandatory, so mandatory national service with a military option, I think, would be an incredibly healthy thing for this country. Um, my father once pointed out to me, um, I was debating... The, the sort of morality, this is right post-Vietnam, I was debating the morality of signing my selective service card. And 18-year-old boys still get in the mail a card from their government that says, we want to know where you live in case we need to come find you. 
You put a gun in your hand to fight a war. Girls don't get, girls don't get that. Boys do. And I got mine at 18, and the draft was over with, right? It was 1980. I was the first genera- I was the first year of young men who got this card. And I was, so my father, like, what is this? Like, I, I mean, I grew up in New England. My, my, fa- my parents were, like, very committed pacifists. Um, everyone I knew was against the Vietnam War. And I just, I just had no idea what this thing was. I said, I'm not, I'm not signing this. And he said, yeah, you are. He said, look, the United States saved the world in World War II. There's thousands of American soldiers buried in France. He grew up, my father grew up in Europe. He grew up in France. He said, thousands of American soldiers buried in France. They saved the world. And you don't owe your country nothing. I mean, you, you may owe it your life. And if, it's, if, if the war that you're called to fight is an immoral war, in your estimation, then it's ju- you have just as much obligation to protest it and not fight it as you do to fight a moral war. It's the, an equal obligation to your country, but you're going to sign that card. And I did. And when he put it that way, I was suddenly like tremendously proud to be part of this like amazing collective experiment. Um, and uh, and that is a little bit of that feeling that I think might be um, ob- obtained by everybody, boys and girls both, if, if national service were required. You had... Uh, you talk a little bit about a, an experience you had with uh, a panic attack in the subway when you when you had returned from a trip. Do you miss covering war? Yeah, I the, um, yeah I do. Uh, <laughs> I do. I'm, I don't cover combat anymore, uh, but I do. I do. I, I'm both. I both miss it, and I'm glad I don't cover it anymore. I'm sure if you all think about things in your past, you can come up with things like that, that you're glad you don't do anymore, but boy, boy, was it, like, meaningful. Um, I, yeah, that, I mean, I, you know, I was covering war starting in the early 90s, and I was in Afghanistan in the fall of 2000, so it was a year before 9-11. You know, that was back when the Taliban had an air force. I mean, they had MiGs. You know, they had tanks. They had all that stuff. And I was with the Northern Alliance, and we really got pounded a few times. And, uh, I, you know, I came home pretty deranged, actually. But I didn't know what PTSD was because the country wasn't at war and no one was talking about it. I live in New York City, and um, and I went down into the subway, and out of the blue, I just had this massive panic attack. It was it was rush hour, so it was a little, you know it was a lot of people, whatever. But you know, every everything I was looking at was a threat. Like the trains were going too fast. Where somehow we're going to like jump the rail and like hit me, and the crowds were going to turn on me and beat me to death. The lights were too bright. I mean, everything I was looking at was a mortal threat, and I intellectually I knew that it wasn't, but my body was reacting as if it was, and I was I was way more scared in that subway station than I'd ever been in Afghanistan, and I just sprinted out of there, and I kept having panic attacks whenever I was in a small space where there were too many people. And I didn't have sort of control over my circumstances. And I would just panic. And um, it happened in a ski gondola, too, really badly. And, uh, um, and then, you know, much later I found that I just thought I was going crazy. I mean, really, I thought I was going crazy. And, and it, you know, it slowly went away because for most people, PTSD, unless you're continually re-traumatized, PTSD subsides. And it did for me. What do you miss about it? Is it an adrenaline is it your sense of purpose? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, you feel like, as a journalist, you know, reporting on the war in Bosnia, or I was in Sierra Leone during the Civil War, 
I was in Liberia. You, you, you're, you're watching history. You're reporting on events that have enormous consequences for people, for humanity, for the country, for the world. And it, it feels it's like an enormous honor and privilege to be doing that. And um, there was obviously also, you know, it's, combat is a super intense thing. And, and you get... You know, you know, among other things, you get a kind of cocktail of endorphins and adrenaline, which is like pretty, you know, can be pretty intoxicating. But I, to say it's a, like an adrenaline addiction is would be to um, trivialize, trivialize it. Is much more. Pro, I mean, the, the the calling to be a journalist in war zones is much more profound than that. And you have your tribe of war journalists. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a, an affiliation for sure. Um, uh, and it, I mean, the tribe is technically, I mean, the way I discuss it, it's people you live with that you share resources with and that you would help defend with your life. That's your tribe. And, you know, in a transitory way, war by war, um, you know, messed up place by messed up place, you can, you can feel that with journalists at times, for sure. Well, thank you. I think we My have pleasure. probably some folks who want to ask some questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, th- thank you. So, uh, mandatory uh, uh, national service, to me that calls to mind Switzerland, where all, at least all males serve in the military for their um, uh, until they're until they're no longer of um, the right age, but I don't I don't really know whether um, statistics on Switzerland are like less suicide, you know, more suicide, equal suicide to Netherlands or United States or whatever. Do you have any um, insight into that? I'm sorry, I couldn't quite I couldn't quite get the. Well, okay, uh, the, when you mentioned. Um, Mandatory national service. National service, yeah. Right. So what that calls to my mind, at least, is Switzerland, where every every male of military age serves initially for whatever, two years, I believe, or 18 months, something like that. And then periodically, like in the National Guard in this country, um, therefore fostering that that ethic. But I don't really know, personally, whether... You know what the results of that are in terms of psychological. Whether there's like more suicide, less suicide, equal suicide. What? Well, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard to isolate that factor among many others. So it, you, you you wouldn't you wouldn't like the effect on the suicide rate. You it would be a very hard thing to calculate. My my point isn't military service. Uh, it's national service, um, and it shouldn't just be men. It should be women too. And um, I think there should be a military option. <laughs> I, I think there should be a military option because there's plenty of young people who want to be in the military, and it's an honorable thing, you know. But then there's plenty of young people who do not. But they they are. Um, we don't want to deprive them of the chance to serve their country in in the, in the manner that they see fit. And I and I think. Whatever the effect on the suicide rate is, and that's a super complex calculation, I don't think we can do it. The effect on the country's sense of itself uh, would be enormously beneficial. But, 
so the question is, I mean, I, I don't know the answer. It, is, that, is that corroborated by the experience of Switzerland versus whatever, you know, uh, Netherlands or... I, I mean, I don't, th I don't think... I think it's hard to develop metrics that, that can isolate that out from other factors and measure it. I don't, I don't think it's not going to happen. Okay. It's, it has to be an idea that we like. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So not speaking about America, but speaking about a country such as Israel, a small country where a lot of people will know or are within one or two degrees of people who have been lost in war. Um, can you offer some comment about that vis-a-vis -vis the conversation we've mostly had about America and service here and the rates of things that you've quoted? What do we know about that? Well, yeah, I mean, in, in Israel, um, roughly half of the country uh, performs military service. Some percentage of those people are actually in combat. Um, surely every single person in Israel knows someone who's been in combat and probably knows someone who's died. Um, the wars, whatever you want, conversation we all might want to have about the politics of the wars, the reality is the, war, the, the, the wars that Israel has been engaged in have happened on their doorstep. And that, um, that like an earthquake, like 9-11 in New York, I forgot to mention, 9-11 in New York, after 9-11 the suicide rate went down the murder rate went down, the violent crime rate went down, and Vietnam vets in New York who suffered from PTSD from Vietnam said that their symptoms improved because of 9-11. So Israel basically is a, is, a, is a country that has some version of 9-11 sort of lurking in its peripheral vision constantly. And it, and it, and it creates an incredibly cohesive effect on the society. And I read one study where um, they looked at the psychological impact on on teenage on teenagers of losing their father, and they divided the, them into two groups. Some had lost their father in combat, and some had lost their father to an accident. And the kids who'd lost their fathers in combat did much better psychologically later. Because the importance of military of of, ser, of service to your country uh, is so uh, so well understood and so valued, and that helped in the grieving process. That is a that is a country acting tribally, acting communally. I mean, in a sort of psychologically healthy sense. Yeah. Hi. Hi. So it was interesting to me that you mentioned historically that the casualty rate is diminishing. And for me, that evoked two variables. One was the correlation of invasive aggressor versus that of defensive resistance fighter. And then um, incorporating into that uh, technological advantage. And what came to mind particularly was, say, how did the Russian population after World War II fare, given that they were an invaded people? And then looking through time, I think um, the other thought is, is possibly the, the domestic Vietnamese population. And then coming more to the present would be 
the, say, Saudi um, U.S. proxies of, of who became the Mujahideen and what the impact was on those people um, of possibly not specifically the, the Saudis, but, say, the Afghan people or the Iraqi people who were invaded. What was the incidence of, of post-traumatic stress on them? And then I, I guess what comes to mind is a, is a quote of uh, Dave Grossman with regard to what he, he references as the worthy opponent and how technology right. has fared in that regard where the U.S. has a substantial technological advantage. Um, yeah, I mean, where, where, we, where I was in the Korangal Valley, um, the U.S. had an Air Force, but it's, it's, you know, it took, took them 30 minutes to get there. And in those 30 minutes, it was a pretty fair fight between the Taliban and the U.S. Um, and I, I don't, you know, no one's out there measuring PTSD among the Taliban. Um, it's not feasible. I have no idea what the trauma rates would be. I mean, I imagine they're pretty high. I mean, I wouldn't want to be strafed by an A-10. You know, like, but um, the long-term trauma rates, I mean, I've been going to Afghanistan since the 1990s. And, you know, I mean, that, that country's been getting traumatized and traumatized and traumatized. And the, and, and the, the people are really functional. I mean, you know, they're, they're, there's people that have been fighting, who were fighting the Soviets in 1980 and are still fighting. And so there's something about the cohesion in that society which is helping people function. Um, and I, I, I read... So, I mean, ultimately, I can't answer your question because they're not, you, you just don't have psychologists doing, you know, doing mental health surveys in a lot of these countries. They're too messed up. But so we, I don't... The, the data doesn't exist. But I will... A, a German friend of mine said that after World War II, uh, what was called um, uh, combat fatigue... Shell shock in World War One, combat fatigue in World War Two. Now it's called PTSD. But what was called combat fatigue back then, um, the Germans referred to as after World War Two ended, they, they referred to it as the American disease. That the the, the, the Ger- I mean, and I think because the war wound up on their soil, they, they saw it as a defensive war, and they really weren't. The, the the trauma was mitigated by that. Thank you. Hello. I really love the idea of the veterans speaking on Veterans Day. And I will, I will lobby to help make that happen in Seattle. I thought it was a great idea. Th- thank you. Yay. Thank you very and, much. Uh, there's so many, I have so much curiosity about this, so I could ask lots of questions, but it's boiled down to one. Okay, good. And I wonder if you address it in the book. Could you speak about how the involvement of women in um, the military has changed the sense of tribal connections? Because I was really struck when the guy from Antioch was talking about the uh, students that are in the house tonight. The, the, the what? Say again? The, the students from Antioch who oh, are yeah. taking the class, yeah. mm-hmm. are, they're, they're here. And those names were as, mi- as much female as male. Yeah. Right. And I'm very curious about that whole uh, change in our lifetime. Yeah. Well, well. first of all, let me just say um, thank you. I'm glad you like my idea. And we, we, <laughs> we've, we've done it I'm once. Sure some of us can work together on that. We've, we've, <laughs> um, I, sh- I should say we've done it once in Massachusetts in the town of Marblehead, and it worked phenomenally well. And if you... If you um, the sort of rules and ideas for it are super simple, 
And if you go onto my website, it's sebastianyounger.com, and there's a page devoted to veteran town halls. And it's just a sheet of paper that tells you how to do it. It's super simple, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, but um, I, uh, you know, I've, one of the one of the points for me of my book tour right now is every community, every city I go to, I talk about this because I'm hoping to kind of seed the idea across the country. I'd love to have one in every state this year, and then ten in every state the next year, and you know, et cetera. So, so that that's fantastic. And as for um, women, women in the military, I mean, keep in mind that you know tribes had women in them. You know, like the, I mean, the, the the word tribe implies like everybody, and. Uh, the, the unit that I was with was all men. So I have no idea. I don't have, from, I don't have any direct experience with how women would function in a combat infantry unit in combat. It's just, I don't know. Um, it's not happening yet. So, but certainly at the larger bases, there are enormous numbers of women. And, the, uh, you know, I, I mean, sort of functionally, they seem indistinguishable from the men. I mean, they're, ultimately, they're soldiers, and they do what soldiers do, you know. And so, it, it, you know, the, the military is incredibly, um, it's very, very good at, at, at when it's told to do something, doing it, you know. And, and they seem to have integrated women, like, incredibly effectively uh, into, their, into their ranks. The next project, I guess, is women in actual combat in frontline units, um, I, you know, who knows? I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, when I was in Liberia during the Civil War, you know, probably 30% of the combatants were, were teenage girls, you know. I mean, they were child soldiers. I mean, this it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a regular army, but, you know, they were carrying AKs and killing people just like the boys were. So they're fine at it. Hey, Al. <laughs> I was with this guy out there. It's nice to see you again. What's up, buddy? Hey, <laughs> friend. All right. <laughs> Good so this to see is my you. question for yeah. you. So now... 31 years old, veteran, college student, college freshman. So going in as a college freshman at 31 years old, I'm in a classroom full of people who were literally children when 9-11 happened. So for me personally, I feel like the greatest divide that I've had to conquer as far as from a social aspect has been how do I relate to those people when you're talking about a tribe and all that. I mean, these are the kids, they grew up in a time of war, but... They weren't actually at war. Their mothers and fathers, a lot of them, came from white-collar families yeah. where war was just on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. What do you think can be done as far as this generation now, the millennials, if you want to call them, being educated on veterans, or should they get a better understanding of what it is that we went through, all the work that you've done and stuff to show the world that, or... Should it be more on our shoulders to understand that they do not understand? (laughs) I I mean, I think it sort of behooves all of us uh, of any age in this country to really understand something as significant as a war. I mean, um, I I mean, I think that it it is it is on them to understand it, and uh, but. You, we have to be realistic. Like, you can you can be told about something, you can understand it to a certain degree, but you're never going to quote get it right. You're never going to get it any more than I'm going to get childbirth. Like, there's a, there's a limits to how much someone can understand something that they'll never experience. 
And, um, but I, 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 that's not the crucial thing to me. The, I mean, for me, the crucial thing is that, pe- that people in this country and that young people are saying to themselves, this is relevant to me, even if it doesn't feel relevant. It's relevant to me because it's happening to my country. Um, but that phrase, my country, isn't even one that comes readily to many people's mouths. You know, and uh, a friend of mine who's a philosopher, a wonderfully smart, educated guy, we were talking about this stuff, and he said, you know, they don't teach civics in high schools anymore. Like, if you teach civics, then people come out of high school feeling like citizens. And if they feel like citizens, then they'll vote because they're citizens of a country that they consider to be their country. And civics classes, I mean, in my lifetime, have all but disappeared. And I don't know why. Like, do, do we not want people voting? You know, like, what's going on? And so uh, you're absolutely right, but what, what you're experiencing is part of a much broader problem, which is that we've stopped um, instructing students. We've stopped communicating to them the fact that they're part of a country, and the country needs them, and they need the country, and that's that 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 has been like largely lost, I think, in just people's consciousness. And um, I think one way to return that um, a little bit is some sort of some sort of community process. And the only one I can think of, I mean, listen, if people got other ideas, shout them out. But the only one I can think of is this sort of town hall idea. Um, with veterans, you know, at least one, you know, one day a year, we're all experiencing countryness together, whatever our political opinions might be. Thank you. It's good to see you, man. You too. <laughs> Hello, Kaylee from Town Hall here. We're running a little short on time, but we do have time to get to those of you still online for questions. All right. Thanks. Thanks for coming out, Mr. Younger. Um, thank you. First, I want to say thank you for continuing to share the message about it. We're just an instrument of the country's policies and interests. Um, so, you know, we just move out when we're told to. But my question is, um, so I just recently retired, and my wife is experiencing a loss from her tribe. You know, are you getting those discussions? Are you participating in those? Are you hearing the same thing? I mean, are veterans' spouses out there? sharing these same feelings with you, not just the veterans themselves, because I see her going through this now, and I'm wondering, is there enough of a discussion going out there that we're telling the public that, hey, it's not just the veteran, but it's their families, too, that are experiencing this? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I I mean, I think spouses and families have maybe the hardest job, as hard as it is to be a soldier. Um, The, um, what what spouses go through is really, really hard, and um, you know, when I was a war reporter, um, I, I mean, I, w- I was running, I was married. I'm not married anymore, but for some time I was married. And, um, you know, I, I, was having the ex- I was having an experience along with running the risk, right? My wife, she wasn't having an experience. She was just scared of the phone ringing. Like, she didn't get anything... Like, she didn't get it. There was no trade there, right? It was just all downside. Like, that she was scared I was going to get killed. And I, I realized that, like, I didn't... I, stopped, I finally stopped war reporting after my buddy got killed in Libya. Tim, Tim Hetherington. 
And I stopped, not because... Not that I was sort of scared for myself, but watching the effect of his death on everyone who loved him, I suddenly realized what my wife would go through. And I realized that if I kept war reporting, chances are that I I wasn't going to get killed. The odds aren't bad, right? But I realized every time I was gone, every time the phone rang, uh, she was going to jump because we'd had this terrible news about Tim. And that's a tough job. That's way, way harder than being out in the field with some at least feeling or illusion of control over what happens. And um, so yeah, is there, you know, is there trauma in the families? Yeah, absolutely. And, and is there in the support systems that, that military spouses and families have on bases and stuff? Is there, if you, when you move, when you transition out of that to the civilian world, like is there a real loss there? Enor- enormous loss. And if there was an equivalent support system in, you know, I mean, I grew up in a suburban town, right? And if I, if the town that I grew up in had that equivalent kind of support system for people just going through life, because life's the military's hard, but life's also really hard on everybody. Eventually, it's hard on everybody. And if there was a support system in the town that, like, it, boy, would it have been easier? But there wasn't, and there isn't for most of us. And so, yeah, when people transition out of the military. It's 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 devastating for you know the whole the whole family. It's really hard. Thank you. Um, I have a two part question. I'm going to try to give you the easy one first. Okay. okay. Um, I'm I'm only halfway through your book, so uh, apologize if if this is covered in the second half. No worries. Um, after World War II, pretty much all of Western Europe. Um, came together and did things that they hadn't done before, such as creating health care for everybody and education for, for everybody. And it was this, um, this sense that I'm assuming comes from that unity that was created during World War II. And I'm wondering, in a country, in our country right now, with as much division and tribalism that exists, is there anything short of a major catastrophe that would create that experience that yeah. could cause that to occur. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the question. I, I, I mean, I say in my book a little bit cynically, maybe, but I, uh, you know, I say, you know, maybe the, because of the, the, the binding effect of being attacked on a nation, because it f- makes people come together in this rather extraordinary way, um, I say a little bit cynically in my book, the ultimate terrorist strategy would be to not attack us. <laughs> because we, we are definitely disman- you know, dismantling the unity in this country on our own quite well. And the thing that would really bring us together again would be to be attacked. And a very sophisticated strategy would be just to sort of let this process continue. Um, that said, I think what's happening... I think it's very important that, poli- that that journalists don't reveal their personal politics and don't try to lead, you know, you know, sort of bias the jury or whatever to be super neutral. So I'm going to do that. But um, I think it's fair to say that what's happening, whatever your politics are, whatever your party is, it doesn't matter. I think it's fair to say for a lot of people in this country, the political process that's at work right now and the tenor of the conversation of the public discourse um, is terrifying. 
And it's terrifying because it feels like the country is coming apart at the seams. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is, but I think it feels that way. And I kind of feel, I almost feel like we're, like, like we're children and we're listening to our parents fight and they might get divorced. Like, it's a little bit of that feeling, like, geez, stop it. Like, come on. <laughs> you know, throw one more plate across the kitchen and, it's, you know, you're going to hit somebody, you know. And um, I, I think... I think we're actually, in a weird way, I think we're scaring ourselves, and, I, and I'm hoping that, it, that it's actually an organic process that will, that, that will come around and, and eventually, like after, frankly, like after many marital fights, that will come around to real closeness afterwards and hopefully some understanding. I mean, that's my, that's my hope. Thank you. Um. On a second, second that, was, that was the easy question. That okay, was the easy one. I'll get ready. <laughs> on a second, uh, potentially controversial topic, um, in your book you talk about um, men and her- heroism and the uh, instinct for that with children and women in particularly. And I'm wondering your thoughts specifically with that and that research on women joining men in the battlefield and what effect that may have or if, or if that yeah. would be applicable well, well I, I mean I found this amazing study it was from the Carnegie Hero Fund I think it was called and, the, and they, they looked at what's called bystander rescues you know basically you're walking down the street and you know someone's in, 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 in peril their life's in danger and you risk your life to save a complete stranger and what they, they did an analysis of who does that, right? It's interesting. It's completely elective, right? Like, you can't force people to do that, and you can't force them not to. People just spontaneously do it. And something like 90... I can't remember exactly from my book, but something like 95% of spontaneous bystander rescues are performed by men. Um, what's interesting is that if there are no men around, women will do it very, very quickly, no problem. But if, if, it's, a, if it's a group that is mixed sex... Uh, women will let men do it. And um, it's very, very consistent. I mean, it's, it's you know, across societies, and it's, a, it's a, I would say, almost a universal. Balancing that, I mean, that's one form of courage. And the, the mortality rate for that form of courage is around 20%. It's higher than almost any unit in the U.S. military. Okay? Just for context. Balancing that is something called moral courage. And... Um, that is something that women have in spades. And they did another, another study that I found called The Righteous Among Nations. It was a study of Gentiles, uh, people who are not Jewish, saving, pe- saving Jewish people during World War II in occupied territory, uh, territory occupied by the Germans. So if you hide a Jewish family in your basement and the German authorities found out you were dead, it didn't require the kind of muscular action that jumping onto some train tracks or running into a burning building requires to save someone, but it was an equal act of courage. And women were more likely to basically take a moral stand that might kill them, more likely than men are. Um, and so the question is, how, how will women perform in combat given those statistics? Actually, the question is more oh. of, would men be more likely to... Um, voluntarily or involuntarily protect the women in combat and how would that affect the process? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not a soldier, but I, from what I witnessed out in the Korangal and in combat in general, um, 
the, the safety of the unit really came from small group tactics. It wasn't someone personally protecting another person. That didn't really happen very much. It really came from the sort of coordinated tactics that a squad or a platoon conducts in combat. And everyone, you know, like a football team, like everyone doing their job. That's where everyone's safety comes from. So I, I, think, I, I, I think that reflex, if it, it was a factor at all, would be, could be trained out of soldiers pretty effectively. I mean, there's a far stronger reflex to not stick your head up above the rock when someone's shooting at it. And, <laughs> and indeed, boot camp takes care of that reflex. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a problem. Uh, I've been a fan of your work for years. I've been showing it to my soldiers before they deployed to Afghanistan. Thank you. I just, uh, in order to see what they were getting into, um, I uh, and made them read excerpts from war. But uh, my biggest question is: I just got out. I'm a student. I'm a student at Antioch now. Um, and if the, in the exit process that we do from the military, if it hadn't have been for Antioch scooping me up and picking me up, I would probably be in a far worse psychological place. Yeah. Um, what is it that you think that the military or um, the government can do on a larger scale to help people with the to help soldiers improve the exit process in terms of psychological effects? Well, I mean, you know, I think the problem isn't the process; is that you're exiting to a society into a society which is extremely alienated. And yeah, I mean, I, I really feel like you know, you want to help the vets. Uh, let's help. Our, I mean, we can help the vets by helping our society. I mean, it really is a societal issue. The, the vets specifically. I mean, I you know, I, um, I think it helps to have sort of communities within society that are veteran focused and where you can gather and talk and do whatever you want to do. But but you know, ultimately, that's a stopgap measure to fix a problem that's affecting all of us. And and I really do think that if we figure out a different way of talking talking of conducting our politics. Of um, you know town hall meetings, national service. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just grabbing at ideas myself. But and if we do those things, it it will help veterans by helping us. Like I mean, they're one in the veteran. You know, the veterans and us is the same. You know, ultimately, it's the same thing. You know, I, I think you guys experience the effects of societal problems first. Um, but I don't. But I, it really is all of us ultimately. Thank you. I have one last follow-up question. Yeah. Um, I wonder if there is a place for veteran service organizations and pl- to to spread this message, to bridge this gap, to be the liaison between civilians and veterans, to create that dialogue that will put us on the level of humans rather than individuals yeah. who are who are just trying to get through our day. I mean, you know, social media is great for exchanging information, but it lacks a certain human touch. <laughs> um, but I see good vets orgs getting out and doing service projects in the community for yeah. non-vets all the time. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, all, yeah. I mean, I, listen, all that stuff's great. All that stuff's great. I mean, I, you know, I'm not sure. You know, the question is sort of open-ended. Like, I think it's all great. I think the town halls would be great. I mean, I, I mean, we're um, look. We're you know we're, we're at a very complicated a novel place in human history and we're going to have to keep inventing solutions for where we've gotten ourselves to but but I know we can I mean look we walked on the damn moon like I mean we can do it <laughs> all right all right <laughs>
Thank you, Sebastian. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Sebastian Younger spoke with KUOW's Patricia Murphy at Town Hall Seattle on May 31st. Thank you again to Bree Ripley for our recording. Tune in again soon.